I'm told that one of the qualities of an Aquarius is not believing in astrology. And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I, I, you got me. It's a hit. We are so glad you're listening to this early episode of Kick-Ass Queers, but there's just a little something we want to let you know. You may find that the audio is lacking. In places. I believe the technical term is cockapoopy. It's. <laughs> yes, it's, it is. It's rough. It is, is cockapoopy. We, we really like the content. We hope you enjoy the content as well. So we hope that you yeah, just stick it, with us. It should be noted, Rachel and I both have degrees in exactly <laughs> this and should not have faced these challenges. Fun fact Larry and I actually met in our degree program that taught us how to do exactly this so <laughs> stay in school kids <laughs> and, and we both work in higher ed that's the amazing thing <laughs> hello and welcome to this episode of kick-ass queers i'm larry womack and i'm rachel stewart and today we're going to be discussing a vogue fashion artist and world war ii spy who painted the queen mother and survived five concentration camps my goodness, is this going to be about James Bond? Kinda, actually, at times. I, I'm really excited about today's episode. We've done a lot of research to present what I think may be the most complete and comprehensive biography of this subject that's out there. But I did just want to mention at the beginning, this is going to be more of a roller coaster than most. There were a couple of details that I personally found pretty unsettling and upsetting. And I just want to warn people that when we get to the Holocaust, it's going to be more disturbing than you might be prepared for. After that, we're going to get back to fun stuff again. As I mentioned, he survived these experiences and went on to have this other crazy, fabulous life. But we do have to get through some really, really upsetting stuff to get there. Well, wow. Okay. I'm very curious to hear about this. And I think it's good to let people know to get into that mind frame. So I appreciate you letting us know that while we love to look at kick-ass queers, our history does not always include a place for us to be able to laugh. Brian Stonehouse was born in Torquay in 1918, but he didn't grow up there. His father, Thomas Stonehouse, was a mining engineer and a World War I army captain, and his mother, Bertie, was a schoolteacher from a prominent family. But Bertie and Thomas were not married. In fact, Thomas was still married to his second wife, who would not grant him a divorce. I remember back in those days and a lot of the world, both parties had to agree if there was going to be a divorce. So Thomas and Bertie just lived as if they were married, and they had three children, Brian being the middle child. For the time, that was pretty scandalous, right? Yeah, that, so was, like have... a, that was a Dateline episode for them. <laughs> You have to imagine that this situation did invite some unwanted attention, especially given Bertie's family's social standing. It was also a lot cheaper to live in France than in the UK at the time. So Thomas decided to just move them all to France. And as a result, Brian was actually raised there and grew up fluent in both French and English. And you need to remember that because it's going to be really important later on. There will be a test. It's actually not that much later on. It's coming up pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> lies already. Lies, yes. lies. <laughs> About three weeks after Brian turned 13, Britain went off the gold standard. 
So the cost of living there suddenly plunged. And Thomas was like, okay, well, it's cheaper to live back there. Let's just move back. They didn't move back to where they were before. At first, they moved to Croydon. We're not going to get too judgy about that. And then they moved (laughs) to Ipswich. Even at this age, Brian was already known to be a talented artist. And Ipswich was also home to the famous Ipswich School of Art. So he enrolled. By the time Brian is 17 years old, he is already producing professional fashion art. Awesome. Right. But if you think about it, he grew up as an outsider in a number of ways. He was illegitimate. He was at first from an immigrant family when he was living in France. And then he gets back home and he's practically a foreigner there because he'd grown up in France. And he was also gay. So Um, he was a foreign gay bastard. Yes. And an artist on top of it all. In his late teens, he's still working as an artist. He gets taken under the wing of this popular cartoonist named Robert Giles. He's doing an animated version of this comic strip called Come On Steve. And he hires Brian to help work on them. He also worked a little on cartoons for this left-wing newspaper. And Mm -hmm. after he graduated in 1937, he's like, you know, that doesn't really suit my interests. So he moved to London hoping to pursue a career in fashion and became a window dresser. Okay. He also so started... He, he did all the decorations in window displays, right? That, right. That's a window. Yes, that's a window dresser. Yes. So he made it all look pretty, like the Macy's windows. Got it. Yeah, and you have yep. to imagine that was probably a more important gig at the time than it probably not to badmouth any window dressers out there. You do very important work. <laughs> you're going you're to get a nasty email from the Window Dressers of America Union. <laughs> right. But like at the time, that was how people were seeing the products. He also started working on these sort of fashion cartoons, which definitely helped guide his style later on. If you look at his portraits from later in life, they got a lot of character, a lot of life. According to one author who's reviewed his letters, I have not, sadly, they seem to indicate that he was also interested in geopolitics. Mm. Um, and in particular, he was not a fan of Adolf Hitler. He, you know, that probably, that was probably smart. Um, yeah, that was a good call. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting cross-section. That's an intersectionality we don't see anymore. Window dresser slash anti-fascist. Slash cartoonist, yeah. Slash cartoonist. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't reviewed them, and you know I don't <laughs> trust anyone to get things right without looking at it myself, so who knows? Right. But it, it seems like he was interested in this stuff. Not a fan of Hitler early on before invasions and and all that. But it might make sense because when the war broke out, he enlisted in the military. But I'm also a little unclear on this point because authors who write about him stress that he had this great need for adventure and this known hatred of Hitler, but he enlisted in the territorial army, which other sources point out existed side by side with the rest of the military as a peacetime backup. Mm -hmm. So... There's some question as to whether or not this was like, yeah, I'm going to go fight the war. Or if it was a little like when um, George W. Bush joined the National Guard to avoid going to Vietnam. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm in the army, uh, too. Right. But he also has this incredibly clear record of very daring bravery during the war. So, I don't know, to me, it's sort of a question mark. Okay, I'll just interject. I have a friend uh, who has been in the Air National Guard for 20 years now. 
And she has gone into active duty like four times, like in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and the Middle East. Well, I, and that's an interesting point because things <laughs> change, right? Now the National mm-hmm. Guard has that. And things changed very, very quickly for Brian mm-hmm. as he was conscripted into the Royal Artillery. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Very, very soon after. He was serving in Edinburgh Castle when a bunch of French soldiers are evacuated from Norway and they wind up in Glasgow because they cannot be repatriated. At this point, Germany's in France. Um, Remember, he grew up in France. He's fluent in the language, so he gets put to work as an interpreter. And this gets him on the radar a little. Some, Some people take notice, like, oh, he has this skill. But that assignment ends, and he gets sent off to Orkney, where his talents are wasted for a year and a half, before he gets called down to London for an interview with the War Office. It turns out that Special Operations, which I will probably later call the SOE for Special Operations Executive, because that's what it's named for some reason, they've developed this new super secret project, and they need people who can pass for French. Their plan- I mean, this is you like have a pencil mustache and a beret and carry <laughs> around a baguette and a bad attitude, like beyond being able to speak French. Like, what? <laughs> They plan to train an elite group of men and women to infiltrate occupied countries in order to help the resistance movements there and sabotage the Nazis. Churchill's directive was actually to, quote, set Europe ablaze. Burn it to the ground. Okay, thank you, Winston. And you know what? Done. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm not blaming Churchill for that. I feel like that's kind of on someone else, but kind of happened. Basically, he got recruited to become a a secret agent stationed in Nazi-occupied France. So, summary here. He gets called up. Hey, we noticed that you speak French pretty well. Well, Let's go over to Vichy, France, and don't get yourself killed. Mm, I don't know that they actually said don't get yourself killed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we'll get to reasons for why I might think that. Very shortly. Um, Okay. First, they send him off to one of these super secret special training schools that the SOE had established in really remote locations. And he gets put through a series of extremely intensive and grueling trainings (laughs) that stress physical fitness and armed and unarmed combat and guerrilla warfare in general. And on top of that, everyone spoke only French, so it was like an immersive language school, but also this really brutal training ground for all kinds of combat. And then after that, he gets trained for another three months to become a wireless operator. I'm pretty sure this is the same plot as G.I. Jane. I mean, it is very much like a a movie. And in fact, just like in the movies, he's given a secret identity and a code name, Celestine. He was to pose as a French art student working for Vogue which is really interesting because he will end up working for Vogue in a very prominent capacity later on. Um, Well, he already had it on his resume. They're like, we'll just hire you back. This was so detail-focused that they even had a factory that produced things that could pass for French, right down to the correct buttons in the correct places and the stitching style. And they built for him a transmitter that was disguised as an artist's paint box. Now, it wasn't super inconspicuous. It was like, 18 inches wide by 13 inches high. 
but it looked like a paint box. Yeah, but to be fair, back in the early 40s, that was about as inconspicuous as you could get since computers took up entire, you know, building floors. So that that's practically yeah. a, a teddy bear cam these days. Yeah. He also was given a poison tablet, which he could choose to use if he was captured, just like in the movies. Yeah, I was going to say, that's um, what in, in, in contact, they give her the poison tablet. Hmm. I think it happens in James Bond movies, too, sometimes when they're like, mm-hmm. they go to ask them the questions, like they're interrogating the person they just captured, and, the, and then their mouth starts foaming because they've taken, taken the, the cyanide capsule. Yeah, that's our oh. cue. That person will not be answering that question. <laughs> and honestly, that's probably the idea here, right? More than it just being for their comfort, like if you'd rather die. It's probably more like if you think you might not be able to keep your mouth shut. While being tortured, right? Right. It really is all a lot more like the movies than at least I would have expected. Yeah, no, I mean, these are several different movie plot points. And it's all one already. And we haven't necessarily gotten to part that would win the picture the oscar so i'd like to play for you just a little clip of him reading from the diary that he kept at the time okay sunday january the 18th monva manor have written to several row about my uniform have nearly reached 12 in speed in morse 5.22 revolver on range this morning and made hand grenades this afternoon and blew up, a, uh, blew up a tree. Made hand grenades this afternoon. It's a little bit disturbing, to tell you the truth, because he's got the same accent as uh, King George. So it sounds like Birdie talking about blowing shit up. Yeah, kind of. It's a lot. It um, is a lot. And blew up a tree, that poor tree. Yeah, that tree did Gave its life for the war effort. Yeah. <laughs> so throughout the six months of this training... He's thinking of it all as a really great adventure. He's going through the super spy school, and that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of James Bond before James Bond ever happened. And he gets promoted to lieutenant. He said in an interview in the 1970s, I think, that it didn't occur to him to be afraid until the day he was supposed to be thrown out of a plane to land in France. And then he was like, why would I agree to do this? This is crazy. I'm going to die. Which he had every reason to believe. Because a life expectancy of one of these wireless operators was about six weeks. Oh, my goodness. I've actually, I've read estimates that range anywhere from three weeks to eight weeks, but six seems to be the most common. And the fact that we're even talking about it in weeks tells you they weren't really expected to survive this. So he was not told to come try to survive and come back. They were like, good luck, sucker. Have fun with your paint mm-hmm. box. Use the pill, it'll be more fun than what's about to end up otherwise. Okay, okay. But it probably did occur to him to be afraid before the actual day, though, because before he was shipped off, he went to visit his parents. In 1938, Thomas's second wife died, and the couple was able to marry. And they remained married for the rest of Thomas's life, which is pretty good considering his track record up to that point. He didn't tell them what was going on, obviously, but they could tell he was really anxious. And his father wrote in his diary at the time, I'm quoting here, with the unknown future immediately in front of him, from room to room he moved, playing the gramophone records he'd accumulated. Merry French love songs, played them over and over as if he knew it would be his last opportunity. Shall we ever see him again? If so, it won't be the old Brian. Yeah. And as if he couldn't possibly be made even more anxious by all of this, 
the first attempt to drop him in France is a bust because the plane starts having mechanical problems just as they get near the border and has to turn around. Imagine knowing you're probably going to die doing this thing and you have to get on a plane to make that happen. And then you have to get on it again. Nope. No, no, that's, mm. that's why, that's why God invented AWOL. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, can you send me back to Orkney, please? I, <laughs> I mean, honestly, at that point, no, I, it's, I think that's such an interesting point though, thinking of this aspect of war, especially with conscription, you didn't choose at all. And then it's like, we don't even know if the plane's going to be safe enough. You're going to bring the average down by like a week, maybe. <laughs> just gonna like, <laughs> oh. and then that's going to be it. So this is already, when you think about the stress and trauma, and this is the safest part. Yeah, and about that. So (laughs) the second attempt is a success in that he landed in France. He's on his way. There was no one there to meet him or help him, as, as there should have been, and his equipment got stuck in a tree. So for the first five days to a week, depending on which source you read, after his arrival, he mostly had to focus on getting the equipment out of the tree without drawing attention to the fact that he had clearly just parachuted down out of nowhere with a shit ton of wireless equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing rocks up at it. The Germans Toss your apple then, over your shoulder. Hope you hit it. Hope you hit it. Germans are like, that's a big squirrel. Mm. Oh, wow. That's, um, mm. and I mean, does he, I guess it doesn't really matter. Does he have food? Does he have like, what oh, is? Good question. <laughs> good question. Because he also discovered that even though the plan for him was to arrive on June 30th in the first place, and he actually didn't get there until July 1st, they had given him June ration books. So he couldn't get food. He had to survive (laughs) off peaches that he stole from local farms for about two weeks, which resulted in a case of severe dysentery. Boy, that sounds like that might change a person. On top of all this, after all of the attention that they had put into crafting this persona and making all of his clothing to look thoroughly French, they definitely overlooked a major detail. An empty carriage, except for this one woman sitting by the window. And eventually, you know, we, I don't know, said nice day or something, and, uh, and looked at my shoes and said, my God, uh, I love your shoes, and my brother bought exactly the same pair of shoes in England in 1939. <laughs> so that was, I said, my God, you know. Yeah. That's I what mean, happens when you wear your Yeezys to battle. You can't, uh, <laughs> and, and there has been some speculation that maybe something had happened to his other shoes and he- They were up in the tree. on another pair or something. But <laughs> that seriously could have gotten him killed, that one detail, if it hadn't been an empty oh, carriage. Which is kind of weird because you feel like there had to be people living in France who had English shoes. So maybe, maybe this isn't exactly I, they did. They didn't have Amazon back then. No, and you, you don't know, like, want to attract attention either way. If you are, in fact, a spy <clears throat> carrying a shit ton of wireless equipment with you, right? So when he is finally able to connect with the resistance, his first contact is not helpful at all or sympathetic to his situation. The contact basically just took the 100,000 francs that Stonehouse had been given for food and supplies, and then sent him away to go work for another contact in Lyon, where he did get nursed back to health and discovered that his equipment had been damaged on landing. Because remember, it was stuck in a tree. 
Mm-hmm. Has it's anything so has so anything bad. gone right for Brian at this point? Because this is all. And again, remember he went into this being like, what the "F am I doing this for?" And now he's like, "No, seriously, like God is telling Allah, Buddha, flying spaghetti monster is telling me that this is a terrible fucking idea." And it's going to get a whole lot worse. I'm glad I took my antidepressants before this. After this, he gets to Leon. He spends days sleeping in the forest because he can't find his contact. He does make contact with local resistance, finally. A courier brings him new equipment, but then after they move to Vienne for like another thing, that equipment gets damaged by the French electricity current. Okay, this is going from 007 to like a Mr. Bean sketch in a real hurry. Yeah, it's tough. It's really, really hard. He's not catching many breaks. Um, I just love that you, you you mentioned before about how they spent so much detail on things like buttons and sewing and all of that. But nobody was like, huh, everybody has like a different setup for electricity. Maybe we should take that into consideration. Right? Oh, and also your shoes are so fucking obvious. But hey, guess what? Your buttons look really fucking good. Dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's possible, actually, that the damaged equipment is part of why he got caught. But we don't really know. And Um, then it started making a high-pitched squeal, and everybody knew where I was. (laughs) (laughs) So so the way that this sort of system worked is the wireless operators worked under a, a local organizer. And by the way, these are all really weirdly gendered roles. The wireless person would be male... The local organizer would be male, and then the couriers were all female. And I think the reason is that they felt women had more freedom to move, going to the store, you know, household stuff, whereas men are sort of more expected to go to work and come home. Stonehouse does mention in the interviews that are on Real to Real at the Imperial War Museum Mm -hmm. that at this time he would also occasionally just go shopping, even though he didn't need to, or go to the movies or something like that, just so that he would be seen living a sort of normal life and not hold up looking suspicious. Oh, man. They would have totally thought I was a spy. I never like to leave the house. I'm trying to think about if, and heavens forbid, but if that were something like this were to happen now, I think it would be very, very hard to get just normal, regular people to put their lives on the line like this in such an ill-planned and incompetent way. <laughs> I, I don't know how much was ill-planned or incompetent. I mean, you, you've got to keep in mind you have foreign governments working very clandestinely with resistance movements that are not that organized, at least not at first. And mm-hmm. when they are organized, they're losing people constantly. Their equipments, their assets are being taken all the time. Or they have to destroy them to avoid detection. It probably seems less competent to us than it was. The organizer would tell this lady the message. She would then deliver it to Stonehouse and he would transmit it to London, which we're not really clear on whether or not he was the best at. His messages were so frequently unclear that they joked back in England that he should have stuck (laughs) to art. Wow. Wow. But remember, again, his equipment also got fried at some point. So who, maybe that was the problem. Who knows what's happening at this point? Oh, man. Um, poor Brian. Hey, poor Brian. Poor uh, Brian. So his, it's going to stop being funny soon, but for now it's still kind of funny. His courier was this lady named Blanche Charlet. 
Just one of the greatest names in the world, by the way. Right, and that's not even her code name. She had some other code name. This was her real name. Blanche Charlet. Blanche Uh, Charlet. And they decided to hole up at a chateau outside Lyon. (laughs) And that made sense to some degree because the owner's wife, a woman named Elsa Jordan, was a fashion model. So Not as good of a name. The fashion model should be named Blanche Charlet. Yes, probably. Though, I don't know, I love Elsa Jordan. That's kind of a great name, too. I mean, Elsa Jordan, she she sounds like she's selling knockoff perfume in Times Square. Like, get your Um, Elsa Jordan here. (laughs) And I I think at this point, we need to point out that our producer, editor, is named Louis Jordan, which is like Louis Jordan, the the French (laughs) film star. See, now, Louis Jordan sounds classy (laughs) but i mean so this gave them a very plausible cover story he's drawing for vogue she's a model he met before the war and her husband is apparently just very understanding (laughs) i don't know i don't know what's going on there oh Um, my goodness gracious but this wasn't a good call if you're transmitting something in secret you should do it from a crowded location and never for very long because the nazis have of course vans that they drive around detecting where these wireless signals are coming from and triangulating their positions. So this is a really good way to get caught. He went out into the middle of nowhere and then transmitted for three hours. All of the other operators in that area had already been captured. So he was handling all of their messages too. (laughs) Oh, wow. So he's outlasting them. See, um, this is the reason why Americans have this ego about going into wars, because the English are not looking super awesome right now. This is terrible. Yeah. And it allowed the Gestapo to triangulate his position pretty easily and come mm. arrest him. And in fact, he had even radioed to London at that time that by being on air as long as he was, he was committing suicide. Elsa, remember the fashion model? Which, how spy movie is that? She sees the detection bands, cuts their wireless lines so that they will not be able to track them anymore, cut off the signal. And they scramble to hide the equipment and destroy any records, but they do get captured. Much later, while appearing in this 1979 documentary for the BBC, Stonehouse learned from Elsa, because she's in that as well, that Blanche Charlet had in fact seen the vehicles triangulating his position, but didn't warn him because she thought that sending the messages was more important than avoiding detection. So they're just trying to get as many of these messages out as possible. And it didn't really matter, at least to Blanche, as much that they themselves would likely die as a result of this. What a hussy. I mean, they must have been pretty important messages, but also kind of like, screw you. Let's give the other people a choice in that too. My Um, gosh. So another reveal during that documentary, Mm -hmm. um, Elsa says that Blanche had been in love with Brian, which was news to him, (laughs) and had even attempted suicide later over guilt about this. But Elsa stopped her. And in part, Elsa stopped her because this would have outed them as members of the resistance. Wow. This is... (laughs) like it's so funny to see everybody's motivation there's not a lot of altruism which let's be fair altruism probably takes a backseat mm-hmm. in wartime but 
I love this. It's not like you shouldn't take your life because you're a valuable creature. It's you shouldn't take your life because don't fuck shit up for us. I imagine she was probably pretty mad at her because remember Elsa cut the lines to avoid detection. Right. And at this point, Brian is in prison, possibly a concentration camp. Blanche was also arrested, but she escaped. Good for her. Right. Good for her. Also a little sus, but good for her. Good for her. Mm-hmm. His response to learning that she was in love and that she had not warned him that the vans were coming and the Nazis were going to come arrest him was, we were all young then. Boy, um, if, that, if that was ever a homosexual response to a lady who didn't pick up on the message. Right. Um, wow. She also would be like, we're posing as a couple. Kiss me. Like, <laughs> but um, He's like, the things I had to do for wool. But I mean, keep in mind, while all this is going on, the dude's only 24 years old. Oh, geez. So I was, I mean, I was still driving the wrong way down the one ways in Chico when I was 24. So I give him some credit. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> were you in the French resistance when you were 24, Rachel? <laughs> I sure was not. No, no, no. Anyway, Brian, okay. he has now been arrested. So, He's in somewhere by the Gestapo. At this point, things are going to stop being funny and get pretty dark. He and Blanche are arrested. He is beaten and kicked and dragged down the full driveway, which is very, very long. This is a French chateau. They're both in prison, first for two weeks at the small prison, and then they get moved to a larger one. And that's when Blanche escapes and eventually makes it back to England. In December of 1942, he gets transferred to an even larger prison, Conditions are really bad. He is regularly taken to Gestapo headquarters in Paris to be tortured and interrogated. Okay, we might get funny again for a quick second. Because the questions he's asked are bizarre and not very clear. And remember this when people talk about how together fascists are and how organized they are. Because they ask him questions like, what is the BBC and who is the heir to the British throne? (laughs) That makes no sense at all. Like you can just, oh, oops, I don't know. Or like, I know. But I'm French. Shouldn't they have been asking him about French things that he might not have known? What? Like, it just it doesn't make any sense, right? That's, like, why well, would you ask? I've never really thought that fascists like, had their shit together, so. They, they fully don't. They just no, don't. No, no. Because it doesn't matter who's most competent. Like, that's sort of the essence of fascism. Maybe they just didn't know. They, that's the <laughs> what, what is the BBC? What is the difference between channels four and two? <laughs> Where do you get the Eurovision? What's the deal with ITV? <laughs> is, is it BBC? Is it not? My accent is all over the place. I don't know what I was going to say. I, I, I'm pretty sure not, I went into Russia for a minute there. But again, my position is I'm making fun of Nazis and it's cool all the time. Also, interestingly, and this is from a description <clears throat> of one of the reel-to-reel recordings, again, at the Imperial War Museum, Klaus Barbie somehow comes up in these interrogations, and I don't know the context. I put in a request to the museum, so maybe someday in the near future we'll be able to revisit this and expand the episode or something. I don't know. Um, but throughout the torture, he doesn't break. He just he says, I'm a French art student on assignment for Vogue. It's the same French, je peux dormir le cœur tranquille. I can sleep um, with a, um, a tranquil heart. 
after three weeks of torture. On Christmas Eve of 1942, a German interrogator named Arnold Schneider tells him, well, we're just going to shoot you as a spy. Remember this guy, Arnold Schneider, because he will come up later. Okay. Um, And the reason they were just going to shoot him is because he was designated in-in by the Gestapo. That abbreviation is for the words Nacht and Nebel. I don't know if I've pronounced Nebel correctly, but fuck them, they're Nazis. And that means night Nacht. and fog. Nacht und Nebel. Nacht, I know I got right because Nacht. of the fucking Nazis. Nacht um, und Nebel. Yes. Um, okay. People with this designation weren't just killed. Any trace <clears throat> of their identities were eradicated so that no one would ever know what became of them. So he gets told this and decides, you know what? I'm going to tell them I'm a British officer. I thought I'd be shot as a spy. And um, I wanted my family to be able to trace me after the war. That was the reason, main reason for declaring myself British. So instead of being shot and erased from history, the torture and interrogation just continues for another 10 months. My question was always to gain time. You don't lie. I'm not, good. I'm not a good liar. Because if you lie, you have, to have, you have to be able to remember what lies you told. And so I tried not to lie for that, not for any moral reason, but for the fact that if I'm asked something three months later, and I've, I'm not necessarily remember what it is I said, you know, what I invented. You have to make sure your story's straight because they may ask you months later. Um, right. <clears throat> it's messed up. You never know um, when they're going to ask you what the BBC is. Um, yeah. yeah. In October of 1943, he is transferred to his first concentration camp, which I believe is pronounced New Brem. But again, if I'm mispronouncing that, fuck them, they're Nazis. The concentration camps differed in goals and methods, and this one was basically a torture camp. And Mm. beatings were the most common form of torture. For example, when they got off the truck, everyone is ordered to run around the camp pond for three hours. And those who could not complete the run were beaten really savagely. Then everyone was shaved. They were hosed off and smeared with disinfectant. He survives this camp. And then they are moved to Matthausen camp, which was more horrific. He later wrote that the sight of it on the skyline when he arrived was, quote, the most impressive and terrorizing sight I have ever seen. It was a granite quarry. And and this Mm. is one of the things we need to have some warnings about. It was home to the stairs of death, which you may have heard of in the past. And this was a nearly 200 step staircase that went from the quarry floor to the top. And the prisoners had to carry the blocks of granite up the stairs. And if anyone in the line couldn't make it, which, I mean, this is a demanding task for healthy, well-fed people Mm -hmm. um, and malnourished, likely ill people in a concentration camp were not healthy or well-fed, the domino effect from someone falling would likely kill them and everyone below them. Some prisoners, Jews especially, were forced to carry the blocks up the side of the quarry, and then they were just pushed off holding them in what they called the parachute jump. That's disgusting. Um, It's, it's, yeah. That's disgusting. 
And so at this point, I, I do think it's important to mention that concentration camps were not everyone gets treated the same. Jews were treated worse than other prisoners. Gays were treated worse than other prisoners. Okay. Yeah, fun fact about that is that when the camps were liberated, mm-hmm. a lot of the homosexuals were left to serve out their sentences. So even when the camps were liberated, gays were not exactly liberated with them. They were, because it was illegal pretty much everywhere, so it was seen as like, oh, well, you're serving a sentence for something that actually matters. Yeah, most gay men who were, and it it was gay men for the most part, some women were arrested for Mm -hmm. disorderly behavior type things, but gay men who were arrested by the Nazis most weren't sent to concentration camps because this was considered a criminal act. Um, mm-hmm. People believe that about 100,000 men were arrested for homosexuality under the Nazi regime. Um, and what would happen is that they would usually get a trial. Mm-hmm. And of those 100,000, 53,400 were actually convicted. Most were sent to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, some were castrated. Um, this was officially with their consent, usually to secure an earlier release, but you, you, you have to have a hard time believing that. And then probably around 11,000 or so were sent to mm-hmm. concentration camps. And those that were, were treated especially horrifically. Um, remember that some of the most enduring and early images of Nazi horror are acts taken against LGBT people. There's a really famous photo of policemen in 1933 standing outside the El Dorado nightclub, which they'd shut down and boarded up and covered with Nazi campaign posters. The most famous Nazi book burning was at the sacking of the Institute of Sex Research, which served a lot of gay and trans clients. They took the client list from there to target those individuals. In the concentration camps, Gay men were usually given the worst jobs, which is saying something. They were sexually abused by guards and by fellow inmates. They were experimented on medically. And beginning in 1942, the commandant of any concentration camp could order the Pink Triangle prisoners to be castrated at any time. And then, as you said, when the camps were liberated, all the governments involved kind of went like, okay, but shouldn't they just go to jail instead? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just really important to realize that Stonehouse, like probably over a million other people in concentration camps, is gay, but that's not the reason he's there. Right. Um, He doesn't have to wear the pink triangle. And one assumes he would have had to remain extremely closeted to avoid being branded with a pink triangle, which would have made his chances of survival significantly worse. He survives all of this for many, many reasons, but some pretty big ones are that he's not Jewish and he's not known to be gay right he's passing for straight um and so that gets him a more i mean there's no great way to put it but a more favorable position within the concentration camps the other thing that i think is is important to point out here is the evolution of gay iconography because i think with most people now when they see a pink triangle they know that they're safe so we use those in schools for safe zone training stuff and we use that yeah, I mean, Knob Hill puts up the giant pink triangle in the Bay Area for pride and all of that. Oh, yeah, but we the call fact, that gay Christmas. 
gay Christmas, right? right. Yeah, because wow. we put up the we put up the Christmas, we put up the gay Christmas tree, uh, the pink triangle. And when I talk to a lot of my students, students who aren't gay have no idea what the pink triangle is. But my students who do identify as gay or non-binary, queer, part of the rainbow spectrum, uh, most of them don't realize the reappropriation that has been done with that specific symbol. I think it's important that it does have a reappropriation, much like the word queer. But I also think it's really important to understand where it came from and the abject horror that it brought tens of thousands of gay people. While he's at Madhausen, this especially horrific camp, he does get an exceedingly lucky break. He meets an SS guard who had been a POW of the British during World War I. And the British had been kind to him because they weren't fucking Nazis. Um, so he kind of starts to look after Stonehouse. He gets him an easy, relatively safe job in the kitchen. And when he discovers that he's an artist, he starts having him do portraits of the guards and their wives and their girlfriends and their mistresses in exchange for extra food and, and things like that. His style already skewed kind of glamorous. So he's really able to appeal to the subject's vanity in these sketches, dressing them in like glamorous clothes and poses so that one guard's girlfriend will be like, oh my gosh, I need myself put in the same sort of thing to hang in my living room. One interesting thing to note here is that he vowed to and apparently succeeded at never drawing a German officer in uniform. Interesting. Um, This also got him materials to sketch some of the other prisoners. And I think we'll probably post some of those on Instagram, some of the the nicer ones. Nice. He also befriends four other British officers. And this is so key to all of their survival. If one of them gets sick, the others look out for him. If one winds up in immediate danger, the others look out for him. And they just keep watching out for one another and living by their wits as they're moved from camp to camp over the next couple of years. Mm. During his time at Madhausen, he was also briefly moved to a third camp near Vienna, which was this factory where he had to make engines for Germany. Still being used in Volkswagen bugs today. One imagines that this isn't as bad, but I, I don't really have any details. And when that project is completed, he gets sent back to Madhausen, then off to Notzweiler, which is the only concentration camp that's actually in France. Hmm. And this was basically just a death camp for male prisoners. He and the other officers he'd befriended at Matthausen survive in part by organizing musical performances on Sundays that the guards like. In exchange for continuing to do these, they're given a little extra food again. But the camp is beyond horrific. He is experiencing and witnessing things that are worse than you could ever imagine. One of the descriptions on the 1987 interview tapes at the Imperial War Museum mentions, and again, just a content warning here, it says, quote, story of one of victims coming to life in crematorium and dilemma as to whether to confirm worst fears of Diana Roden's mother. Diana Roden was another SOE officer, and she'll mm-hmm. come up again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry about that. I promise that's the, the the worst thing that we will encounter. If you, if you have an animal, go cuddle it. Yeah, or a pillow or, or anything. Yes, yeah, a stuffed animal, um, partner. 
finally, in September of 1944, the British and the Americans are moving toward Mauthausen. So the Nazis just pick up the camp, move all of the prisoners out. At this point, Brian and the others wind up in Dachau. Mm. Dachau is, as its reputation suggests, just a new level of hell. Yes. Um, it, it was built to house 10,000 prisoners without any regard for human rights, dignity, or needs to begin with. And at this point, it holds 35,000 people. And I think what's important to note that by this point, the Germans are starting to sort of lose grip on the war. They've spread themselves too thin. They're getting their asses whooped on the front in, in Russia. And the atrocities that they started to commit were even more horrific than what they had been visiting upon Europe before that. So this truly is like Dante's last level of hell at this point in the war. So this is a bad time to get transferred to Dachau. Typhoid was rampant. Everyone's starving to death. Brian contracts tuberculosis, though I don't believe it's diagnosed or known at this point. But one of his core friend group of these five British soldiers, Pat O'Leary, decides that there's an opportunity in all this chaos that you just mentioned to organize the prisoners. And he founds the International Prisoners Committee and starts recruiting people. They also start gathering and building weapons. Like, what are they making weapons out of? Like soap? No idea. No Sawdust idea. bread? Like, what is happening here? I can't find anything about it, but they're secretly crafting and stockpiling whatever they can. And you have to imagine how dangerous this is. On the 29th of April, 1945, the Americans arrive, they liberate the camp, and this committee of which he has part is able to organize the surviving prisoners to help in the liberation. And you, of course, have to think this mostly means keeping people out of the Allies' way and out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. But this is really incredible. Yeah, and they're not. I understand you've mentioned that they have worked the little privilege and position that they have throughout these, at this point, three years in various concentration camps. But nobody was coming out of death camps healthy. And as you said, he already had tuberculosis. So these are not healthy, robust young men who are organizing this auxiliary help. Oh, yeah, no, they are sick, they are starving, but they're somehow able. And here he is reflecting on those experiences a little bit in a 1997 BBC interview. I never thought of myself as brave, particularly. But looking back, um, I'm amazed <laughs> the things I did um, or lived through. It was an adventure. You know, I want to say boys own a bit of that. Was that just a coping mechanism? Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you process something like that? The way that I handle severely traumatizing information is through humor, so... Well, that's also the way that he handled it. Bob and I were in full uniform and uh, sort of somewhere near the Albert Hall, I don't know why, but and a funeral went past. And um, we started laughing because we thought, you know, all that fuss for, for one corpse. And um, I think one, one used to laugh because that's, that's one, was one's only defense, you know, if you started crying. You know, it's... Um, sometimes I feel now, you know, if something's... If I start crying, I won't stop. 
as messed up as that is, that absolutely does skew your perception of those things at a pomp and circumstance when you have watched over the course of four years, tens of thousands of people die. Yeah, and none of them given that dignity. At this point, Mm -hmm. he has been through five concentration camps, Mm -hmm. three prisons, months, probably years of active torture. Mm -hmm. And he's not only survived, but he was able to help liberate the camp at the end. And at the time of liberation, he gets right to work. The day after the liberation of Dachau, American troops allowed him to go and sketch the crematorium to record it for the tribunals and then the trials that will be coming. Mm -hmm. Um, So he starts through his art documenting what he had seen. Some of the drawings that he made at Dachau and at the war crimes tribunals are now at the Imperial War Museum and the Dachau Museum. Then he was sent to London for a debriefing. He got to visit his family and spend VE day with them. And then he underwent three weeks of treatment because of the tuberculosis. He did stay in the military for just a little longer. He winds up being involved in the various tribunals that are taking place around the former concentration camps. Mm -hmm. He goes back to Dachau to testify there. He testifies at the New Bren tribunals. He gets promoted to captain. He even appears in a movie about secret agents. I don't think he's even the speaking part, but he's there and he's kind of prominent. And through this era where he's testifying and helping identify war criminals and such, he meets this American officer named Major Harry Holler. Holler is a Princeton graduate who had been a feature writer for the Baltimore Sun before the war. And now he was a member of General Eisenhower's staff, writing memos and releases and also acting as a historian, just documenting things as they happen. Harry is taken with Stonehouse and writes in a press release that he is the most interesting guy I ever met in overseas service. And that makes sense since the two of them would wind up living together for many years after the war. Sounds like Brian found his bottom. Best um, kind of cute, right? <laughs> just besties. They're just besties. Just besties. Besties um, in one bedroom flat. Actually, yes, that's what's going to to occur. But before we get to that point, um, he introduces Brian to Eisenhower, who reportedly greeted him by saying, what I'd like to know is why weren't you shot? And Stonehouse reportedly replied with something along the lines of, I was hoping you could tell me. At the end of their meeting, Eisenhower signs a photo to Stonehouse that says, with congratulations upon his safe completion of one of the most amazing experiences of the war. Can we talk about Eisenhower a little bit? (laughs) Because he just, he seems to be, I don't want to say surrounded, but there there are definitely gay men in his life at this period. He's got this guy working for him who we're not saying is gay. We're just saying he lived with a man for 10 years and both of them were wealthy and had no reason to be living in this little apartment together. Um, Then his personal secretary through his 1952 campaign is a gay man named Robert Cutler. Mm -hmm. Um, In 53, he takes office and makes Cutler his national security advisor. So this gay man is his national security advisor. Mm -hmm. Then he signs Executive Order 10450, which barred homosexuals from working in the federal government due to national security concerns, which leads to this long, horrible purge of gays from government. (laughs) 
Cutler himself had to resign as national security advisor in 1955 because he was gay and he was about to be outed. Then he just came back to work in the administration as a part-time consultant. (laughs) And the craziest thing is that Cutler is the one who actually added the language about, quote, sexual perversion to the executive order. Well, So this guy adds this to this executive order and then is the most prominent mm -hmm. removal because of it. I mean, as Um, they say, homosexuals make the greatest homophobes. And due to this language, there are decades of persecution of gay men, which we're going to see really right up through Stonewall and and after. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's a whole other crazy aside. Yeah, that's that's okay. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower is now going to get his own episode of kick-ass closet queers (laughs) that's our exclusive podcast on cock cock we'll just out him we don't care if it's true not a subsidiary yeah we're just these are going to be people Mm -hmm. that we're way too queer for their own good we're looking at you ronald reagan (laughs) so in november of 1945 stonehouse is named an mbe to the order of the british empire you know kylie minogue is an obe Oh, damn, Kylie. Kylie outdid this guy. She, she bedamned him. That's, that's, <laughs> I love her so much, but that seems kind of messed up after talking about what we just talked about. <laughs> We're like, he went through Can five we not make concentration camps. She, <laughs> no, no, like, no, good, you, no. You know I love me some Kylie. You know I have loved me oh, Kylie. Oh, yeah, yeah, but you know, when you, when, yeah, when you do wow. some a comparison, you're like, Better the devil you should know, or Dachau, and it's like same, <laughs> right? Like how are these same? Yeah, yeah, same, same, same dip. Um, <sighs> um, so back to Stonehouse. <laughs> um, his testimony ended up being really important to the post-war efforts. One example is he was asked about some SOE agents who had believed to have been lost at Knotsweiler. In response, he drew a sketch of four women he had seen being taken toward a crematorium, who he also described in incredible detail, right down to this was her real hair color because her roots were visible from having grown out. This allowed them to identify the fates of four missing SOE agents, Andre Borel, Vera Lee, Diana Rodin, we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and Sonia Oshanetsky. They had also been designated in in, mm. so the Nazis had left nothing of them to give their families closure. Forty years later, he painted a watercolor of those women from memory, and that now hangs in the Special Forces Club in London, along with some of his other pieces documenting the war. As all of this goes on, he's getting really ready to move on with his life. He wants to spend a month on the Riviera with Harry. Sweet. Then go off to the U.S. to meet Harry's family. Whoa, meeting um, the parents. Right. They, they move fast, I feel like. This is, is this, are they lesbians? the circumstances. But the military keeps him on for a few months more. And in September of 1945, he finds himself charged with interrogating, remember who I told you to remember earlier? I do, Arnold Schneider. Arnold Schneider, I can't believe you remembered the name. Um, Isn't that amazing? So he was the man who had tortured Mm -hmm. Brian Stonehouse, 
and told him he was going to be shot as a spy when he was mm. first captured. Mm. So the base commander is like, oh, mm. wow. Okay, so fuck that guy. Um, mm-hmm. Here's a pistol. You can just kill him. And Stonehouse refused. Again, he, took, he was like, yeah. He, he, was like, no, he took I the high road. Me. Yeah, he took yeah. the high road, which better than a Nazi. Right, I'm ready to shoot this guy. I was like, yeah, no, like, this is, I'm like, I'm a pretty, pat, you know, like, I don't believe in the death penalty, but I'm you know, there's, there's, yeah. there's, 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 there's exceptions to every rule. Yep. So in October of 1946, the Nuremberg trials are finally over. Harry pulls some strings, gets Brian a flight to the U.S. the next month. Finally, the horrors of the war are behind him. He can move on to this new life. Harry's family is rich as hell. Okay. Um, but the two of them move into a Georgetown apartment, which the Washington Post writing about this described as tiny. <laughs> so like, hint, hint. Um, One bed. Harry. No right? couch. <laughs> um, Harry, his patron, um, <laughs> even arranges for a showing of Brian's work, which the first lady and her daughter attend. So they're just totally living as a couple and it's, it's yeah. not really being remarked about as far as I can tell other than like, yeah, they're shacked up in this tiny apartment. Isn't it um, amazing what money can buy yeah. as long as you're not being ostentatious about it? Right. Brian also starts writing a book at this time, a work of fiction informed by his time in the war. Yeah. Um, he reaches out to some of his friends who survived and most of them are like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about that ever again. Right. I, I don't. I don't want to write my things down. I don't want to be interviewed. You, you got to um, figure these are the parents of boomers. So you know, if you think boomers are against therapy, their parents, the silent generation, they call them a silent generation for a reason. So no therapy. They're not dealing yeah. with this shit. Mm-mm. Then they decide to move to New York, where they're like, he's an artist, um, and we think he's going to be a great society portraitist. How gay is that? So his arrival as the guest of Holler's very wealthy family is a huge deal in all of the society columns. He's written about as being very attractive. He's this dashing spy. He's an artist. So he has all of this talent and a huge in with society. And he starts doing glamorous fashion portraits of people like Helen Hayes and Jose Ferrer Mm -hmm. and eventually doing portraits for Richard Burton and Sophia mm-hmm. Loren and becoming really good friends with Henry Fonda's wife at the time, like such good friends that apparently people started to talk and Henry had to pull them aside and be like, no, here's, here's why this guy's allowed to take my wife to <laughs> do all the, do you, do know, all the do you, you know, our friend rock is just like rock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, That's rock Hudson for the youth. Look mm-hmm. him up. He starts <laughs> hanging out with Hemingway's sort of, gaggle of friends and he develops a really lasting friendship with Tallulah Bankhead can I just we say, are absolutely going to do an episode about I was going to say I think Tallulah Bankhead is an amazing so the fact that those mm-hmm. two were friends and celebrated and prolific bisexual herself right exactly and, and talk about someone who wasn't in the closet at the time no 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 about, about yeah. anything no beautiful then in 1952 Jessica Davies this editor at Vogue mm-hmm decides to offer him a job as the first new illustrator that Vogue had hired since 1939. This was a huge deal. It's the first time in over a decade that they've hired a new illustrator, and his background as a spy is also the subject of a lot of attention. 
It's in the Washington papers. It's in the New York papers. They're really fixated on the fact that he's this former spy. And again, they're always describing him as handsome. And they're like, and now he's on staff at Vogue. One headline in the Herald Journal was just former British espionage worker on Vogue staff. You know, which is so funny because in this way, it's supposed to, you know, showing masculinity at the time, it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be like kind of a dig but he's a gay man, and I saw The Devil Wears Prada, so I know that this is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Even when he would travel for work, it would make headlines. He went to Florida on assignment, and there are all these articles about it. So, mm. yeah, mm. he was a- attracting a lot of attention. He had a 30-year career as a fashion illustrator in New York. First at Vogue, then at Women's Wear Daily. Shout mm. out to my friend Hikmat, who is not a former spy, but does work there as well. Are you sure? Um, you sure they're not a former spy? I've never asked. Well, um, there you go. So for a very long while, you sort of have to keep, because it's going to be weird to you that he's a fashion illustrator working into the 80s, right? But the industry really believed that sketches could show off designs better than photography. So they used Mm. illustrations in place of photography a lot longer than other types of publications. Interesting. In the 50s, probably they're featuring a mix of both. Some things are going to be photos, some are going to be drawings, and he's doing the drawings. He also started doing ads for a lot of retailers like Saks and B. Altman. And in fact, he worked for Elizabeth Arden until the 1980s. Wow. In his personal life, he continues to live with Harry Holler from after the war until 1956, at which point they part ways. Oh, it's so sad um, when roommates break up. It is. It, it seems Harry was an alcoholic, mm. and he spent the rest of his life in and out of hospitals before he died in the late 60s. The two did stay in touch, though, mm. so it's not like they had a falling out. He also continues to do portraits, and they often have a markedly queer sensibility. If you look... At his drawings, particularly of men, I'll put some on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I'm very, will, I'm very like, curious oh, about what queer okay. sensibility is to you because um, mm-hmm. I think it might be different for me than it is for you. Oh, yeah. Probably, you know, because <laughs> I've got a lot of queer sensibility going on right mm-hmm. now, and I don't think this is what he was illustrating. No, no, no. These, these no. are like willowy men in in sassy poses and. Fox. A lot of a lot of rear views, I have to say. Oh yes, we got it. <laughs> um, so after Harry, I keep reading over and over that he was like, <laughs> publicly outed by an affair with a Swedish film star. Mm. Um, I, I know where that quote comes from, and mm-hmm. I reached out to the person who said it. I haven't heard back yet, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but you know, if we do, that'll be fun. There's also a lot of references in the 60s of him being really linked to this Italian journalist that he met through Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. Or more specifically, through his wife, who was Italian. Mm-hmm. The two get mentioned a lot over and over again. I don't know that they were actually a couple, though. One, because the dude is now, or at least was recently, a senator in Italy. And he's married to a woman, and his politics are super progressive. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why he would be closeted. I mean, he could be bisexual. I, I don't know. But I'm just going to guess that they were just friends. Situationship, one-night stand, who knows? 
I just know I'm not trying to wrongly out any Italian senators. That feels like it could be a bad idea. You don't you don't fuck with the Italian Senate. No. <laughs> Look what they did to Caesar. <laughs> At two birthday. Um, but yeah, about the film star affair specifically, I can't find specifics. I don't really know who it could have been. I mean, I have one idea of some person, someone it could have been, but I'm a little skeptical about it. Um, so again, we'll see if we hear back with the dudes at literally 90. So I don't know that I will. Um, but we can make, we can make speculation. Let's just speculate wildly. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, And on episode two, we got a cease and desist. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so by the end of the 70s, fashion photography is really taking off as an art form. We see this wave of superstar fashion photographers around then, and illustration is definitely seen as very old-fashioned at this point. So that career kind of just dies off. In 1979, it's like, well, I don't really need to be here in New York for this. So... He moves back to England and begins focusing on portraiture again, which turned out to be a good move also because he was really sought after. Mm-hmm. One portrait he was commissioned to do was Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, not the current and recently deceased Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, but her mother, who had herself been Queen Consort Elizabeth before her daughter took the throne and became the Queen. So we're talking about King Charles's grandmother, basically. The queen grandmother. Um, The queen grandmother now. He had originally planned to photograph her and work from those, but he was having camera troubles. And the two sort of laughed and decided, well, you know, maybe it's best if she just sits for it. These sittings go on for months on Mm -hmm. and off. And the two develop an adorable friendship. They speak mostly in French. She asks him about his experiences during the war. He becomes a regular guest of hers. When ITV ran a special half-hour thing on him, she said it quite moved her, and she held a luncheon in his honor. And that first portrait that they did now hangs in the Armed Forces Club in London as well. Impressive. He was also commissioned to do a portrait of King Charles, who was the Prince of Wales at the time. But that never happened due to scheduling conflicts. Charles just was booked back to back to back. Camilla. She's the queen consort now. She's the next queen mother's mother. She is. Queen mother's. Side chicks out there unite. (laughs) Absolutely. So he did pass away in 1998 at the age of 80 of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'd been a soldier, a spy, a great portraitist, a fantastically successful fashion illustrator. Reflecting on his experience at Dachau in 1995, he told author Rita Kramer, quote, you had to remain a human being. That was how you won. They wanted to make us into beasts, behaving like men, not letting them destroy the human being in us was how we won. The thing I've been trying to do is make sure none of this is forgotten before we all disappear. We did it for the future. It would have been night and fog for everyone. Mm. Wow. That's I, that's amazing. And I think that he captures a lot of the horror of, of fascism and Nazism. They try to destroy your humanity first. And when they destroy your humanity, that then gives reason 
or justification destroy the person. And you see that with the dehumanizing that's happening today. If you if you stop looking at trans people as human beings, if you stop looking at gay people as human beings, then it makes it so much easier to then just destroy them. Yeah, I was looking at that photo of the book burning outside the Institute for Sex Research, and I thought, you know, if you put out an invitation on social media that was like, local government has shut down this clinic that was giving what we would call gender-affirming care now, but that's not what you would put in that invitation. We're going to burn their books. Mm-hmm. You would get a lot of takers. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'll get a place You would like, get Marjorie Taylor Greene right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, live streaming it on Twitter. It just draws really unflattering parallels. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable parallels, right? Like book banning and banning gender expression and banning what you can and cannot say, that's not even the first step in fascism. That's mid-level fascism. And the fact is that we need to remember that this isn't an abstract. I think that's kind of the point of this podcast is to show all of the places where minority populations like queer people have actually stepped in to save humanity. Okay, but I promise we'll do fun things too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, Larry, like spies this was... and fashion illustrators. <laughs> <laughs> and that little part in the bit in the middle there. Uh, mm-hmm. But thank you. That was really, really interesting and heartbreaking and thought-provoking. I'm really glad we got to co- cover this topic. It allowed us to get a lot of stuff out there that isn't very easy to find online. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to show us some love by subscribing, rating, and sharing with your friends. Also share it with your enemies because they maybe need to hear this. And be (laughs) sure to join us next week when our topic will be... The steamy, steamy love story of Frida Kahlo and Josephine Baker. Oh, that's going to be so much more fun than the middle of this one. We're going to need that. This is going to be our aperitif. This is our palate cleanser. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, I'd also like to thank and acknowledge the writers and producers of a few of our sources. Frederick A. Scharf and Michelle Finnemore, who wrote a very hard-to-find but helpful book on Stonehouse's life and work. The BBC and ITV, who produced short documentaries featuring Stonehouse's story that were really helpful. Russell Miller, who wrote the book Behind the Lines, which included an interview with Blanche Charlet. M.R.D. Foote, who in the 1960s wrote a book called S.O.E. in France that had a very helpful description of Stonehouse's first days on the ground, and feature and obituary writers from The Guardian, The Independent, ooh, I've written for The Independent a couple times, um, and (laughs) CNN. And the poor 90-year-old art dealer I bothered... (laughs) But he's an art dealer, so he's used to... He's he's been... He deals not just with art, so that, that makes sense. And I guess, well, thank you, Larry. No, thank you. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, continue to kick ass. I guess the only other question is, what is the BBC? And how does Klaus Barbie fit into this? (laughs) And and, and where in the fuck did Klaus Barbie come into this?